week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Heralding his father's kingdom, Jesus bookends the conquest of Jerusalem and Matthew with the same words that announced his entrance. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ending this section with a warning. From now on, you will not see me until you say. Matthew's gospel extends God's mercy to Jerusalem one last time. All of us have one final chance to confess our unrighteousness. One last opportunity to seek shelter under God's wings instead of security wrought by the work of our own hands. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 369 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We've now come to the end of chapter 23, and it also, in a way, marks the end of the March on Jerusalem. This whole section of Matthew, everything leading up to Matthew chapter 23, and this critique of Israel through the critique of the scribes and Pharisees, the teachers and the leaders in Israel. All of this is God's conquest of the city. Remember that ultimately the New Testament is capturing Rome, but just as you defeat Caesar in the crucifixion of Jesus, you capture Rome in the conquering of Jerusalem. It also patterns itself after the story of the Old Testament. Again and again, the foreign king invades the city, and it is actually God who is imposing his will on his own city through the might of a foreign king. Now it is Jesus who is invading, just like it's Paul who invades Jerusalem and Galatians, Richard. And it all comes down now to this lament over a city that God has poured his grace and his love over by sending prophets again and again and again in order to call them to a repentance that was never embraced. It's really insightful. This invasion of Jerusalem, the prophecy to Jerusalem was always how to respond to imminent attack and imminent destruction. Those who ask the question of why does God allow bad things happen to good people or whatever, I think basically the answer is he doesn't. They're bad because they have rejected the teaching that God has taught them that we are all to be dependent completely on God and recognize how unrighteous we are compared to God and stop striving to be the righteous ones. 
and teaching others how to be righteous like us. That's the basic evil in the Bible. I mean, from the very beginning, Eve wanted to be like God, a standard of righteousness, to live up to this standard of righteousness that they just couldn't. This was the message of the prophets. The scribes and the Pharisees are trying to live up to this righteousness, which already in the beginning of Matthew, starting with chapter 5 at least, if not earlier, Jesus is preaching about how the level that you need to reach to truly be righteous is unattainable. We can't do it. It's just not possible for my right hand not to know the righteousness that my left hand is doing. I can't. I can't do it. I can't not commit adultery according to what Jesus teaches. I can't not murder according to what Jesus teaches. I can't love God alone and not money according to what Jesus teaches. I can't do it. When I say that I can do it, I nullify the message because the message of the prophets is, oh, you unrighteous ones, here's the prophecy of mercy that God sends to you through his judgment. If I say I'm righteous, then the message isn't for me. The message is for the unrighteous. The secret is for me to recognize my unrighteousness. Recognizing my basic unrighteousness and my inability to reach that level of righteousness, which I'm called to, is the basis of receiving this mercy that Jesus is trying to express here. And his lament is, there's no one here who recognizes their unrighteousness. Everyone in Jerusalem thinks they're righteous, and there's literally no ears to hear what I'm teaching. They think they're righteous, they believe they're better, and they embrace this delusion, this lie about their exceptionalism, because it is a great way to justify building a wall around the city and defending yourself against enemies, which is the story of the Book of the Twelve, as you've said many times, Dr. Benton. How does God break through? He becomes the conqueror. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Just looking at the text here, there's a cross-reference to the book of Ruth. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. It's actually a beautiful connection that the editor has drawn here with this reference, Richard, because the story of Ruth is the story of a foreigner in the line of David. We're back at square one with Matthew. Is Jerusalem your city, Israel? Is it man's city? Is it just like Rome and any other city? Are we just city builders? Are we the children of Cain? Absolutely, we conduct ourselves like the sons and daughters of Cain, interested in an infrastructure that we must build up and defend. When in fact, we should be allowing God to gather up all of us in his care, and we don't want that because that means we have to keep fellowship with people like Ruth, Gentiles, outsiders. I can't stress this enough. 
God did not create borders or walls. When your Sunday school teacher explains, look at the buildings God made, tell your Sunday school teacher with all due respect, God doesn't make buildings in the Bible. He tears them down. He doesn't make cities. People believe borders are real because they worship their platonic ideal. The only thing that's real is the countryside because it's there and God put it there. And if you understood the land in this way, there'd be no tension and no problem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I love the example of Ruth as well, Father, because Ruth was really entering into this land that she had no hope in. She was going in with her mother-in-law who had no power, no wealth, no strength, no protection. But she went there in order to serve her mother-in-law. She said, whatever gods are your gods, those are the ones I'm going to follow, even though I'm a Moabitess. This image of the chicks under the wings of the hen is so powerful. When you were mentioning several episodes ago, talking about Christians who are so firm in their faith, supposedly, and then terrified of Satan around every corner, so afraid that Satan's going to do this or Satan's going to do that, when supposedly they have faith in God and God's victory. It doesn't make sense. If you're a chick under the wings of a hen, why are you going to be afraid of the hawk? What are you going to do against the hawk? All you can do is say, well, I'm under the hen's wings, and the hen's wings are going to have to do. If they don't hold, they don't hold. If they hold, then they hold. But I am completely dependent on these hen's wings. Okay, if you're afraid of the hawk at that point, then you don't trust in the hen's wings. You don't trust. You don't have faith. This is the problem that Jerusalem has had, is that they say they trust in God, and then they put another layer on the walls. They say they trust in God, and then they go and they draft some more soldiers for the army. They say they trust in God, and then they build more chariots. It's not possible it is not possible. And if you look at the spending of the United States government, you can see exactly where we put our faith. We put our faith in the military. It's clear. We say we trust in God, and then the F-14s are going to go bomb the other country in defense of the United States. This is the lament. And Father, you and I were talking earlier about that show, Cobra Kai, and I don't know if people watch this show, but when one of the karate teachers lost out to one of the other teachers and all of his students went to that other teacher. He said, look, I taught you everything and this is what you do. This is how you treat me. He says to his students, his students wanted to blame their old teacher for their shortcomings. And he said to the other teacher, he's like, it's your dojo now. I can't do anything with these students. I can't help them. He said, you students, you want him instead of me? Fine, I'm done. I had you as my students to teach you everything I knew. You rejected it. You wanted to go his way. Okay, I'm done then. I'm not teaching. And this is what Jesus is saying. Like, I came here to protect you, and you didn't believe that I can protect you. You know, I feel sad for me, but I feel more sad for you because what you turn to instead is your own righteousness, your own defense, and the works of your own hands. I can't help you. And the outcome 
of the work of your own hands in the New Testament, in Scripture generally, but specifically in Paul's preaching of the Old Testament to a Gentile audience, the outcome of the work of your own hands is self-harm, self-injury. You want to go your own way and do it yourself? It's just like the story of Israel wanting a king. Knock yourself out. If that's what you want, see what you get for it. You want to circumcise yourself? You're going to cut yourself. You want to do it your way? You're not going to find life. You want to build your city and defend it? You're going to lose it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. You can't produce anything. Why? Because you're going to be like the nobility in medieval Europe. You keep marrying in the same group of people, eventually you start to become a little bit loopy. It's not sustainable to be inward-looking and security-minded. You will eventually consume yourself. This is the story of the Minor Prophets. You gain strength from tribalism. You build a Roman Republic. Then you start consuming the whole earth. And then you end up consuming yourself. It's the story of every empire from the beginning of written history. So if you succeed in defending Jerusalem, what have you really gained? As opposed to opening up to table fellowship with the nations, then there'll be real life then there won't be desolation, there won't be war, there won't be all of the things that we bring on ourselves by defending something that doesn't belong to us and that we've damaged with our own infrastructure. The word here for desolate is erimos, which is related to the word erimos, which means desert. Your house is going to be a desert. It's going to be desolate, it's going to be empty, and it's going to be incapable of providing life. So this whole section reminds me of the Exodus when God himself had to provide life to the people because there was no other means of staying alive in the wilderness, in the Midbar. God wanted to take care of his people like in the wilderness where there was no righteousness or unrighteousness. He took care of his people. And if people rejected him, then they were cut off from the people, which meant they died. It didn't just mean that they had to go find their own way. It meant that outside of the tribe and outside of the life that God gave through the tribe, through the people, there was no life. The people kept rejecting that. Because if you read the prophets, they're always recalling that time in the desert as the ideal time when the ideal relationship existed between God and the people, when the people were 100% dependent on God. And that's why God kept sending these prophets, is as a reminder of this time how they actually need to depend on him completely for life, just like they did in the wilderness. But they kept undermining and killing those prophets. They could not hear those words because they wanted to have the ability to give themselves life. And I'll tell you what, social media would look very different 
if people kept putting on there, I'm incapable of doing anything, but this is what happened today. This is what happened today. This is what happened today. No, they're going to show the cake that they baked with their own hands, or they're going to show the children that they're raising with their own hands. They're going to show the job and promotion that they made with their own hands. They may throw a couple pious words in, thank God, or something like this, but actually dedicating that to God, actually saying that this cannot happen without God, that I am not the necessary piece in this chain. God is the only necessary piece in this chain. It would make social media look very boring because no one would have anything to put except more stuff that God did. This reference to the wilderness is powerful because after God destroys the city, we're back to square one with shepherdism. And a shepherd with his flock in the Syrian wilderness does not need the city because you can go wander the land and find another source of water, another source of grazing. There's always a way without having to defend anything. The way to think of it is your mortgage. Each of you either pay rent or have a mortgage. And if you think owning your house is freedom, you're lying to yourself because there are taxes and repairs. The one who is truly free is the one who lives in the care of God under his wings, roaming freely, living at his mercy. That doesn't mean that the adherent of the Bible can't have an apartment in Manhattan. That's not what it means. But you have to acquire this mindset of openness and liberality and courage and freedom. This is the freedom of the gospel. It's the freedom to be under the infrastructure of the human empire, but live as though you are a shepherd in the wilderness, or a sheep, for that matter. Then suddenly you're not manipulated and held hostage by the fear of the power of death wielded by your oppressor. And don't tell me that you don't understand that fear, because Everyone listening to this podcast has to answer to their boss in order to put food on the table. And even if you have a nice boss today, you're always one change away from working for someone who could potentially make you really uncomfortable, even miserable. So don't tell me you don't understand what it means. How do you get out of that situation? By trusting in God. It's not that the Bible is going to bring about the end of wars and the end of kings. It is that if you submit to it, the Bible will set you free from kings and wars and tyrants. Not free in a political sense, but free in terms of the reality you inhabit when you walk along the way. Freedom, according to the scenario that you laid out, Father, is I have an apartment in Manhattan, and today I walk away because it's no longer needful. I have a job on Wall Street, and now I walk away. This is what it really means to be 
a chick being gathered under the wings if I'm working on Wall Street and it's destroying my soul, it's making me greedy and self-righteous, I have to walk away. If my apartment in Manhattan is making me self-righteous, I have to walk away. I don't have a choice if I actually want to be under the wings. And one of the insidious things that Christians often talk about is stewardship. God has given me these things so that I can take care of them. God gave me these children so that I can take care of them. God has given me this wealth so that I can use it correctly. This is also a recipe for self-righteousness. Because in fact, the reason why we have those things is to remind us of our sin and to remind us of our unworthiness, to remind us of our complete dependence on God. As soon as we forget those, then we become the children of our fathers who killed the prophets before us, which we are. So this is the thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, okay, everybody, you need to start over and go to this thing. What I'm saying is you can't do it. You can't do it. This here, just like Deuteronomy 32, exists as a testimony against you, against me, that we are not doing the right thing. We are not hiding under the wings of the hen who would gather us together. We are off doing our own thing. We are all sheep who want to be the shepherd. And here comes God's patience, God's mercy, God's generosity, which is inseparable from his wrath. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's referring to Psalm 118, but obviously he's talking about the judgment. There is an expiration date on God's mercy. For those who fancy themselves the remnant of Jerusalem, they imagine that they are the defenders of their faith, the people that are supposedly protecting their tradition, building up their tribe, trying to establish the right kind of person to be in the right group, in the right whatever. They're actually the cause of suffering, and there is an expiration date on God's patience with their behavior. That is extremely hopeful. That is good news. We just heard that God is coming to avenge the forgotten, personified in the one who was called vanishing breath in Genesis. God is coming to avenge the ones that have been forgotten by those who fancy themselves righteous and who try to impose their will on God's countryside, building walls and raising armies. There will be a reckoning. So if you happen to be the one who is under the boot of this tyranny, it's really encouraging to hear that God gets angry. That's why it's such a disaster that we don't lean into the discomfort of our wrathful and vengeful God. If he is not wrathful and he is not vengeful, then he's not useful. He's not God. Everybody knows that you all admire power 
Because when power is put to use for the sake of those in jeopardy, power is beautiful because power brings justice from the perspective of the one who wields it. Every once in a while, a human king will do something correct and we all clap for them as though it's some amazing thing when they're just doing what they should. And that's why we don't trust human kings. They change their opinions the way people change their pants. But God is not mocked. God does not change his mind. God does not go back on his oath. God will make sure that for every eye taken, an eye will be extracted, and he will bring justice to the poor when he comes in power. So it is a threat, but it's a hopeful threat for those who have the short end of the stick in the current situation. And that threat, those who are powerful and rich and well-positioned don't want that kind of threat. And they're afraid of every shadow that looks like Satan around every corner because they can't stand to have the status quo upturned. You know, and they don't say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. They say, let's wait and see about this guy who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they want to do. That's what they're actually saying. There's this one group that I've been with, a Christian group, talk about the Bible and other topics, and sometimes the discussions drive me crazy. They're so inane. But there's one guy in that group, and he always can find the one thing that resonates with Scripture. That is the one who says, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, because he's able to see through all the crap and say, here's the one thing that reminds me that I'm not righteous. Here's the one thing that reminds me that I don't have it figured out, and here's the one thing that reminds me that I have to depend on God no matter what. He is so good at separating that one nugget from the person, no matter how annoying they are, no matter how inane their discussion has been, he can find the thing that is scriptural, that is godly, and this is the way that he is able to save all of us by at the end (laughs) reminding us that there is that one nugget that is scriptural so no matter how annoyed you are no matter how much you're ready to run this person out of the group and never hear from them again there's one reason why that person came and spoke and it's this to remind us that each one of us is a sinner to remind each one of us that we are unrighteous when i submit completely to this scripture when i submit completely to god then any hope or shred of help I cling to and I seek out. I don't try to help myself. I don't try to prove that I've got it all figured out. I don't prove that I've got it already. I find that piece of scripture that reminds me that I am a sinner and I don't have it figured out. And that's the only hope that there is as a child of those who killed the prophets, and who scourged them in the synagogues. If your prayer doesn't say, thank you, forgive me, and have mercy on me, you're wasting your breath. And you will not see God again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.